privilege to be here. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. I have so enjoyed the preaching and teaching this week from all. And what a blessing, even this morning. It's been great. Luke chapter 13. I'm going to read the first nine verses. That will be our primary text. And then we'll look at a few verses elsewhere. Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. On Main Street, heading out of our town, is a privately owned billboard. It pictures people walking down what appears to be the road of life, and they're heading toward flames in the distance, obviously representing the flames of hell. And then Luke 13 and verse 3 is the caption underneath the photo, the picture, the artist's rendering on the billboard. And it says, unless you repent, you will all perish. While I certainly appreciate the evangelistic heartbeat of the owner of the billboard, I think he's misusing the verse and sending the wrong message about the gospel. For that matter, a large segment of evangelical Christianity misinterprets Luke chapter 13, particularly this section, using it as a salvation from eternal condemnation text. But once again, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus speaking about matters of salvation from hell? Well, let's look at the text and see. In verse 1, Jesus begins with a current event. Some Jewish Galileans had traveled to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. It could be that they were revolutionaries that Rome was trying to arrest. Now, we don't really know that. That's just me surmising. But what we do know is that Pilate kills them at the temple... And somehow their blood becomes mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. Whether Pilate was justified in killing them or not, we cannot conclude. But Jesus uses that particular current event to ask his audience a question in verse number 2. May I paraphrase it this way. Do you suppose that these Galileans were more sinful than their countrymen? And that is why they died prematurely. What's the answer? No, of course not. We can't make that determination. Only God knows that. That's the essence of what he's saying. Jesus uses another current event in verse number four. He talks about this tower. 
in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. Some kind of accident had recently happened. It was in the minds of all the people. And even in the day before Fox News and CNN, I'm sure it was all over Jerusalem in the news. Everybody knew that the tower had fallen and had killed 18 people. So Jesus asks his audience, do you suppose that these citizens of Jerusalem who died were more sinful than others who live in Jerusalem? And that's why they died prematurely? Well, again, the answer is no. There's no way that we can know that. Only God knows the condition of the hearts of those people. They could have been upright people for all we know. Even today, we know of upright people who are killed in accidents and tragedies of all sorts. We cannot conclude that they're evil or wicked because they're killed in some tragedy or accident. What's the point, though, being made by Jesus here? Well, the bottom line is, unless you repent, you will all perish. Now, the assumption typically made by those who are preaching or teaching this passage is that to perish means to go to hell. But is that justified? Well, the Greek word merely means to suffer destruction. The Greek word for perish. In this context, it means to die, to die physically. In fact, it's the same Greek word used by the disciples when they were in that boat, remember, on the Sea of Galilee, and that magnificent storm arose, and the boat is tossing about here and there, and they're fearing for their lives, and they wake up Jesus, and they say to him, Master, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Well, were the disciples assuming they would go to hell? Well, of course not. And neither are these Jews in Jesus' audience. When Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They're not thinking we're going to go to hell. They're thinking we're going to die. The word perish in this context simply means to die. It's physical death. It has nothing to do with going to hell. Isn't that what happened to these Galileans killed by Pilate? These bystanders killed by the falling tower? They died. Dare we suggest that they went to hell? The whole point of Jesus using these illustrations is to teach them, we don't know. The point is, we need to all repent or we will perish. And so Jesus is saying, look, Jewish listeners, you too will die prematurely if you do not repent. Now, why does Jesus emphasize repentance so strongly? It is because his focus, I believe, in the synoptic Gospels is to call national Israel back to repentance, or back to fellowship, I should say, with Jehovah God from whom they have wandered. So he's calling them to repent so they can be restored to fellowship with Jehovah. God had promised to receive back his erring nation if they would just turn from their sins, return to the Lord. In fact, I want you to go with me to a couple of Old Testament passages. If you would bookmark Luke 13, let's go to 2 Chronicles 7. I think sometimes we forget the context of these first century Jewish people when Jesus was speaking. They would have had an Old Testament psyche. We have a New Testament psyche. You know, we understand through the grid of the New Testament, but they didn't have that. They're thinking through an Old Testament mindset. So what would they be thinking of when they hear this message Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. We'll look at 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13. 
The Lord appears to Solomon. He says, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. And we heard an excellent message, which in part was on humility this morning. Brother Jesse appreciated that so much. Humble themselves because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And if they will pray, and prayer is not a ritual, as you know. Prayer is a demonstration of our dependence on God. Lord, we need you. We're coming to you in prayer because we desperately need you. And if they will seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God says, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive your sin, and I will heal your land. I believe we can claim this promise in a personal, individual, spiritual sense. Israel could claim it in a national sense, a physical sense even, with respect to their land and possessions and so on. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Go a little bit further backwards into the Mosaic Law period. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and find verse 23. And I'll read several verses. The passage goes down to verse 31. We'll see if we read all of that, but starting verse 23. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 23. Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, so in other words, many generations hence, and ye, sh and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. The Lord shall scatter you among the nations. Ye shall be left few in number among the heathen. Verse 28, there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and so on. Verse 29, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. And it goes on to verse 31, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, uh, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. Well, look at these wonderful promises. They're made to national Israel. They have nothing to do with being saved from eternal condemnation, eternal hell. They're all about returning to fellowship with Jehovah, lest judgment come upon the nation. That's what's in the minds of these people that Jew, Jesus is speaking to, these Jews in the 21st century. And as we know from history, Israel refused to repent. And Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome less than four decades after the time of Christ. Now, how do we know that prophetically here in Luke 13... Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Go back to Luke 13. The parable leads us to that conclusion. A man plants a fig tree, down about verse 6, in his vineyard. And even after three years, when it should be bearing fruit, it is not bearing fruit. Now, why three years? 
Well, just some speculation. Perhaps this is a reference to Christ's three-year ministry, urging the nation to repent. I don't know. But in the parable, after allowing these three years and still finding no fruit, the owner of the vineyard orders the fig tree to be cut down to make way for other fruit-bearing trees to be planted. So the gardener intervenes, and he asks the owner to give it another year, or we could say an extended period of time, while he fertilizes, while he nurtures the tree, in an attempt to make it fruit-bearing again. And if after the extended period of time, the tree is still not fruit-bearing, then it will be cut down. The tree is national Israel. The gardener seeking more time for the tree, I believe, is Jesus. God the Father is the owner of the vineyard. Cutting down the tree represents judgment upon the nation, the setting aside of Israel. In fact, we already know that the metaphor of a tree being cut down had been used by John the Baptist in John chapter 3, around verse 7 and following, I believe. Casting of the tree into the fire seems prophetic of the Roman destruction. But have you ever wondered why God gave a period of 40 years from the time of Jesus until the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Why that waiting period of nearly 40 years until national judgment? Why has this gardener requested an extension of time? Well, the quick answer comes from Lamentations 3.22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. The quick answer is in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? God is good. He gives us time to repent. That's the quick answer. God is abundantly merciful and patient and long-suffering, and he gives all of his children opportunities to turn from their sinful ways before he brings judgment upon them. Well, this parable in Luke chapter 13 is about God extending impending judgment upon Israel to permit the nation additional opportunities to return to fellowship with Jehovah. That's the kind of God we serve. And you know, each one of us ought to be thankful for that. Because apart from God's mercies, we'd all be dead. We'd be in a miserable strait. But God is so gracious. He is so merciful. He gives us numerous opportunities to repent. And I believe that's exactly what he's doing in the 40-year gap, if we can put it that way, from the time of Christ's ministry until the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Remarkably, during that period of time, God allows the gospel of the kingdom to be preached even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but only for a limited time. In other words, even after Christ's ascension back into the, into the heavens, the Jewish people are given additional opportunities to repent and receive an inheritance in the kingdom of the heavens, the very thing that Jesus and John had been offering all along. So in other words, when Jesus died, it wasn't instantly cut off, it's all over with. Now I realize that Jesus had prophesied that this offer would be taken from Israel and given to another nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. We understand that to be Gentiles in the church. However, he did give them a 40-year reprieve. 
more or less, another opportunity to take up the offer. And many did. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I'd like to connect a few dots this morning. It's helped me, at least, to understand a passage that has mystified me somewhat in the past. Acts chapter 2. You know this to be the day of Pentecost. Peter stands before a mass audience of Jews who have gathered together in Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate the feast. His message is not for Gentiles wanting to know how to be saved from hell. That's important to understand. That would come later. What he says here on the day of Pentecost is directed specifically at Jews who have to this point rejected the call to repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Now notice Peter's unique message and the profound response. I'm going to start in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, evangelical preachers love this text, and even commentators. And they typically explain it as 3,000 Jews getting saved from eternal condemnation. But I personally do not believe that's what's happening here. How do we know? Well, first, this message that Peter is preaching is identical to the message Jesus had preached to the Jews and John the Baptist had preached to the Jews. Repent! Incidentally, I'm going to throw this out, but I have no time to develop it today. It would take a message or a series of messages Repentance is not required for salvation. Repentance is separate from salvation. You are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1.4, listen to this verse. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now listen to Acts 2.38 again. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. It's an identical message to what John had been preaching. Another way that we know that Peter's message is not focused on the gospel of grace at this point, is from Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. Look at that verse. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Very clearly, Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience 
And they are devout. They are regenerated men who have come from the nations where they had previously been scattered as a result of the Assyrian invasion of 722 B.C. They have come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover 50 days prior to Pentecost, during which time Christ had been crucified. Many of them undoubtedly had seen the crucifixion or had heard about it, and they remained or returned for the Feast of Pentecost. Peter's message is not directed at how they can be saved from hell. In its proper context, Peter is speaking to Jews about their need to take up the offer that Jesus and John had been preaching to them all along, to repent and be restored to fellowship with Jehovah God. Now, if Peter had been preaching the gospel of grace, he would have preached something like this, as Paul did, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But that's not what he preaches. Instead, he preaches, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Peter is essentially preaching in the spirit of Jeremiah 31 and letting these Jews know that the new covenant has arrived, but he also has a stinging indictment upon his brethren. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. You crucified the Messiah. You've been looking for your Messiah all along, but you stumble over Jesus. He's the one. He's the Messiah. And they're stunned. Because these are Jews who I believe are regenerate. They want to get it right, but they've not gotten it right. Then Peter starts talking about King David and the Messianic promise. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried. His sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. This is a Jewish message, through and through. In fact, he quotes Joel's prophecy in his sermon. Now let me boil it down to a few sentences. Here's what Peter's preaching. God sent Jesus as the Messiah. He came to offer you inheritance in the kingdom of the heavens, but you crucified him. The Jewish audience here is stricken with grief. And look at their response again in verse 37. They're pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They've come to grips with the fact that the one they had really been looking for all along, they killed him. Oh no, what now? Peter says, repent and be baptized. He doesn't say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They're already regenerate Jews. He says, repent and be baptized. In other words, turn from your sins, embrace Jesus as your Messiah, become immersed in water to signify your cleansing and change of life. This is not the gospel of grace. The good news as to how an eternally lost person is saved from eternal condemnation 
Incidentally, because so many insist that it is, errors in interpretation have resulted, have they not? For instance, many churches, for example, the Church of Christ, believe that baptism is a requirement for salvation from hell. They base it largely on this passage. That's a horrific error, for eternal salvation is by faith alone. Most Protestants, including Baptists, would insist that baptism is not a requirement for eternal salvation, and I agree with that. Nevertheless, they resort to interpretive gymnastics to try to make the meaning of Peter's statements fit the gospel of grace message by faith alone. It's like putting a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't work. You've heard all the gymnastics people use to try to make this not be a salvation by works, salvation by baptism message. Well, misinterpretations of this nature entirely disappear when interpreters realize that Peter is not preaching the gospel of grace. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that those saints who repent of their sin who go on living in fellowship with God will qualify to inherit the heavenly realm of the kingdom. Now let's fast forward a few years to Acts chapter 3. You might have to turn over a page. The context, Peter has just healed a man at the temple. And the people wonder at the sight of it. And Peter, like a good preacher, wastes no time and starts preaching. Look at chapter 3, verse number 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and you desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot, I know that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers, but those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Again, Peter proclaims, God sent Jesus as the Messiah, but you killed him. I know you did it in ignorance. You were zealous for God. You thought Jesus was a fraud, but he was God. After preaching about Jesus, Peter calls his Jewish brethren to repentance. Again, look at verse 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Do you know the phrase times of refreshing is a direct reference to the messianic kingdom? In fact, later in the passage, it's referred to again as the times of the restitution of all things, 
Peter's not preaching to unsaved people about how to get saved from eternal condemnation. He's preaching to covenant Jews who are saved, who are regenerate, about their need to turn back to Jehovah because the kingdom is coming and they need to repent and be converted. Do you know the word converted does not mean to become regenerated as it is so often misused? It means to revert, to turn again to a previous state. These Jews need to turn again to the previous state of fellowshipping with the Lord. For they wandered from Him in obedience. They are disobedient. And if they don't repent, then judgment will come upon the nation, as Peter warns them in verse 23. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Judgment's coming if you don't repent. We know that to be AD 70. Now we fast forward one more time to Acts 28, a few years later. Would you turn forward there? Acts chapter 28. The year is now A.D. 63 or 64. We're getting pretty late in time here in Acts 28. Paul is in Rome. In fact, he's in prison. In verse 20, he gives his primary purpose for being there at the end of the verse. For the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. What is the hope of Israel? Well, in a general sense, it's Jesus. But more specifically, it's the Messianic hope, the Messianic kingdom. Thus, God has allowed Paul to go to a Roman prison so that he can preach the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews in Rome. Can I demonstrate that? Sure, look at verse number 17. Came to pass after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. Aha. The sermon is a heartfelt appeal to his Jewish brethren. Now skip down to verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him to his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified what? The kingdom of God. Persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses, out of the prophets, from morning till evening. Some believed the things which were spoken. They believed the gospel of the kingdom, that is. Some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well, spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand. Seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted. That is, revert, turn again to their previous state, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God, this is salvation in the sense of God's deliverance of them from their sinfulness and receiving them and so on, is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. The apostle teaches these Jewish leaders the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 23, attempting to convince them from the scriptures that Jesus is, is indeed the messianic hope. Well, his message to them is the same as what Jesus had preached to the Jews. It's the same as what John the Baptist and Peter had preached to the Jews previously. In fact, in verses 24 through 27, Paul here quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Jesus had quoted those very words in Matthew 13 when he said that he was going to begin resorting to parables for teaching so that he could reveal truth about the kingdom to those who wanted to get it, those who were teachable, and he could conceal truth from those who were hard-hearted and didn't want to get it. 
Well, what is Paul offering here in Acts 28? Is it salvation from condemnation? No, I believe the end of verse 27 indicates it's a message of conversion and healing. These Jews have been sickened by sin. And does not being sickened by sin disrupt our fellowship with God? Indeed. So what's their need? Repent! Turn back again to your previous state of communion and fellowship with Jehovah. Now sadly, because the Jews had rejected the gospel of the kingdom time after time after time again, Paul here says the focus of the apostles would henceforth turn to the Gentiles and their spiritual needs. And we know the primary need of the Gentiles was the gospel of grace by faith alone. According to the book of Romans, Israel presently lives in unbelief. For individual Jews of our age to be saved from condemnation, they must believe the gospel of grace by faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I believe what we're looking at here in the book of Acts is a transition period for about 40 years after the death of Christ during which God was allowing the Jewish people who were regenerate, primarily, not all, but primarily regenerate, to turn back to Jehovah in repentance and receive the offer of inclusion in the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of reward. Do you know that during the tribulation, 144,000 Jewish preachers, chosen and protected by God, will evangelize the world, particularly their Jewish brethren, and first they will point them to faith in Jesus, but they will also go about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now why will the gospel of the kingdom be preached during the tribulation? In order that national Israel might repent and be restored as the wife of Jehovah to rule over the nations of the earth. Will Israel repent? Well, I have some good news for you, and you already know the answer. It's found in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 12. They shall look upon me whom they pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. How does the parable of the fig tree apply to Christians? What can we take away from it? Well, I think the best way to apply it is to say that just as Israel needed to repent and become restored to fellowship with God in order to avoid temporal destruction, and so that they could inherit a place in the heavenly kingdom of the heavens, the city of reward, so Christians today need to repent and get right with God to avoid disinheritance at the judgment seat. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. That is, whoever lives for self now will lose his or her reward at the judgment seat. Interestingly, did you know that the word lose in Matthew 16.25 is the same Greek word translated perish in Luke 13 and verse 3, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish, you'll lose out. <laughs> You see, you, dear Christian, will lose your reward at the judgment seat if you live for self here and now. Consequently, any prospect of ruling and reigning with Jesus in the kingdom will be forfeited. 
of course you'll regret that throughout eternity. So I think our takeaway from this message, which was mainly a teaching message, but there is an application, our takeaway is, are you preparing to meet Jesus by walking together with him in sweet communion? Or are you rejecting the gospel of the kingdom as a believer? Are you saying, that's automatic for me? Or are you saying, I'm good enough? Are you living in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount? And as I said in a previous message, the only way we can do that, for it's a tall order, is by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. He is our enabling provision to live the Christ life. I trust you are. I trust this has been a blessing. I trust it will give you something to chew on. You know, a man in the bathroom this morning caught me and said, you're a heretic. And I just sort of shrug my shoulders because I hear that all the time. But uh, I hope after hearing this message, you won't consider me even more of a heretic. I hope you will embrace this and move forward and understand. By the way, the guy was joking. He was joking. But I hope you'll move forward in your understanding of the word of the kingdom. Thank you so much for the privilege. Brother Alan? Yes, sir. Appreciate it, Brother.